This is Nate Hansen. And Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Welcome to Almost Heretical. We're going to jump right in and pick up where we left off last time. Tim, you said you were so excited to talk about like trees and branches and and all that kind of stuff. So where are we going? What are we talking about in this episode? Yeah, so we're going to pick up from the conversation we had last time, uh, which is me sort of further unpacking this idea that holiness is contagious. And the argument that I'm putting forth that this idea is presented intentionally within Leviticus and the Torah. And it's actually an important theme that gets picked up in the New Testament and one that has been missed by many scholars. And we addressed a listener question that suggested uh, that this idea essentially isn't in the Hebrew Bible, but was something Jesus was making up new in the New Testament. And I think it's really important to push back on that and show that that Jesus, according to the New Testament authors, was jumping off of these themes from Leviticus and doing more of what Leviticus was doing. That's going to lead us into these this really interesting new territory, which I've been super excited to get to for months now, uh, which is essentially the, the chemical science of mixtures uh, that is actually underlying much of the Hebrew Bible and then much of the New Testament, the, the Jesus science experiment. You're going to get all Bill Nye on us here? A little bit. Yeah, we're going to talk about stoic chemistry for a little while. Oh. Um, but then that's actually going to take us into, Nate, the answer to your question, which is why the, why was the resurrection necessary? What did the resurrection do? Yeah, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? And I've been promising that for, I think, three episodes now. So we are going to do that in this episode you'll hear the answer. Well, I don't know about the answer. <laughs> Are you going to have the answer? Um, I don't know. We're going to respond to it, or Tim's going to respond to it. So wait for that. Okay, let's just jump right in. Nate, do me a favor. I want you to read Deuteronomy 22.9. Okay, Deuteronomy 22.9 in the NIV. Do not plant two kinds of seed in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. Okay, so... Don't mix stuff together. And weren't there other, like, don't mix stuff in some of the Old Testament laws? There's... L- I'm trying to remember some off the top of my head. Yeah, so there's... A- oh, one was... And people people still do it. People still talk about it. It's One is the, the, the fabrics, right? Like, that's why you're not supposed to have, like, synthetics now, like some people will say, is because you weren't supposed to mix two different types of threads or materials, right? Yeah, that's two verses down. 2211 oh, and also let's go there. in Leviticus 19. Hold on, I want to pull up the 2211. Okay, do not wear wool clothes of wool and linen woven together. Yeah, I know that some people follow that as like a <laughs> you know, a practice for not mixing um, like synthetic materials or whatever or not making synthetic materials. Yeah, so I think I briefly touched on in a in a past episode. So you have two uh, passages of mixture prohibitions. It's really interesting to compare them. One is in Leviticus 19. The other one is here in Deuteronomy 22. Um, and in a future episode, we'll get into the line about not combining or yoking together an ox and a donkey and how that plays into Paul's famous, infamous line about not being unequally yoked with a, a non-Christ follower. And we'll talk about how that means the exact opposite of what we've always thought that it means. But that's not for today. For today, I want to point out just some solid evidence uh, that hopefully doesn't 
overwhelm us with distrust for modern English translations, but at least should should allow us to take something with a grain of salt. Okay, so we just read Deuteronomy 22.9. You shall not sow... Uh, I'll read the NASB, uh, which is a translation I recommend for a lot of reasons in a lot of situations. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard will become defiled. Would it surprise you, Nate, that the Hebrew word translated here as defiled in both the NIV and the NASB is actually the word sanctified. It is the exact opposite of the word that our translators have placed there. Wait a minute. You're saying it's not like another version of the word sanctified, but like the opposite one? You're saying it's literally the word sanctified? It's literally, the yes, the word that means the opposite of defiled. It is tikdash, which is a form of Kadosh. Read it again with with uh, replacing it with sanctified. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, or all the produce of the seed which you have sown, and the increase of the vineyard will become not defiled, will become holy. Become sanctified. So hmm. okay, remember we said there are two processes, and not even become sanctified. Uh, sanctify is the English word we use for the term become holy. Ah. Uh. To literally, you could just say it's holied. It's the same, it's the, the noun form, and the, it's just the verbal form of the noun holy, kadosh. Uh, so so here's, here's what we're seeing. In this statement, if you blend something together, a, ch- a change is going to occur. And the text very plainly, and using a, a very common term that occurs throughout all all of Leviticus, something will become holy, right? We've talked about so many different places where that idea is represented. It's so strange and foreign to the, to the thinkers who are trying to decide how to translate this because they are too, very well tuned into the idea that when two things touch, defilement often happens. So we need to separate things to protect against defilement. They're so not tuned in to the idea that sometimes holiness is what is spread, that they simply change the word to the opposite of the word. Wow. <laughs> they use the opposite translation. I was floored uh, when all, so I read in Logos, but if anybody out there uses any digital Bible software and you can double click to find the actual word behind the text, just double click on the word defiled and you'll find that it is the opposite word. It's simply, there is no defiled there. You don't think this was an intentional thing so that we didn't see this is what's really going on there. You just think it was maybe a misunderstanding of the deeper, like what's actually going on. I, and I think what it, it, what it is, it's evidence. I, th- I think it's good natured, right? Uh, Bible translation requires interpretation. I think this is a very strange interpretation. I think the NIV in a digital form ha- at least has a footnote, but then the footnote doesn't even say it's about it can become holy. It, it makes up this other interpretation to try to explain why defiled probably isn't the, the right word and maybe it means this other thing. But basically what I'm saying is it's evidence that the text itself is presenting a theme that has been so misunderstood and, and gone unnoticed that it's even been unintentionally hidden from us because the people who are the middlemen, the translators... Couldn't, they didn't even have a, a box for it. They had no category 
for positively contaminating holiness, for right. viral holiness. So they simply put it in the other box of defilement. So, oh yeah, yeah, you're right here. The footnote is for Deuteronomy 22.9 in the NIV. Uh, instead of um, the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled, it's or be forfeited to the sanctuary. So that, yeah, that's right in keeping with what you're saying there. Right, and the reason they put that foot, footnote uh, is something we've talked about and we're going to talk about a lot right now, is when something becomes holy, remember that meant it became the property of the priests. To give something God effectively meant you gave it to, to God's portion of the people, which was the Levites. And so they are saying in a footnote what it actually means, which is that it would become the portion of the, the priest. But why does it become the portion of the priest? Because it became holy, not defiled. So they're actually making a footnote that, that's explaining there's zero justification for putting the word defiled here. And they're revealing, not that they're bad people, they're revealing that they can't understand why, if you mixed two kinds of seed, it would produce holiness. Or, or here's, to perhaps put it differently, if you mixed a seed that was common with a seed that was holy, the result is, according to Deuteronomy 22, and we'll also see according to an entire canon of rabbinical discussion, debate, and law, that what happens is the holiness wins out over the common thing, and both fields or both vineyards or both plants, both fruits become holy. And the reason that's a concern is because therefore, if your seed or your fruit or your vineyard just became holy, you don't own it anymore. It just became the property of the Levites. It, right. it meant there's a tremendous economic risk to something becoming holy. But again, we're saying it's becoming defiled because in our head, what we're seeing is, okay, we've We've paid enough attention to the Levitical themes that when, when, for instance, a human touches a corpse, that corpse is so defiling that it defiles that clean human, right? We, we've paid enough attention to that idea. We've missed this complementary idea that when something is holy enough, it will spread and make other things holy. So it, here's another thing that we're seeing is most of these modern English translations have not taken the time to do their homework in reading Jewish interpretations of the Hebrew Bible. One thing we'll see, there, there's a text you probably heard of, Nate, not familiar with, I'm guessing, called the Mishnah, that is sort of one of the foundational uh, canons of Jewish, essentially, legal literature. So do they translate this word, whatever the word that we translate into defiled, do they translate that a bit differently when that word appears in, in the Mishnah, or is it something else going on? Uh, no. So again, the debate is not over the meaning of the Hebrew word kadosh. It means holy, It's and it's a word, it's one of the most common words in the Hebrew Bible. It means holy, and then the verbal form means to become holy or to make holy, which again, we use the language of to consecrate or to sanctify. Uh, so the question no one's actually asking the question in the Hebrew of what the word means, uh, which is why this is such a, a standout uh, mistranslation, is, is they clearly know that the word doesn't mean defiled. There's a whole word that means that. Uh, they simply can't explain it. So what we see in the Mishnah is not so much just like, oh, how do they deal with Deuteronomy 22.9? What we actually see is that 
the idea that holiness spreads underlies the entire logic of the debates in the Mishnah. And, and then on top of that, what we see, so that the Mishnah is divided into six divisions. They're basically six sections uh, under different, essentially, topical uh, categories. And the sixth division, which is the longest, is entirely devoted to the idea of the, the mixing of different substances or different goods, and specifically how not to accidentally consecrate, to accidentally make holy, to kadosh your goods, otherwise you'd have to forfeit them to the priests. It's an in incredibly important practical concern. For instance, if you're going to set aside one-tenth portion, right, a tithe portion, 10% of your grain from your household to give to the Levites as sort of as a, as a tax to their, for their services, how do you make sure that you don't accidentally make your entire portion of grain holy and starve to death, right? <laughs> so what we'll see is if, if any of these uh, Bible translators had read the Mishnah or even just sort of been, been broadly familiar with the idea, they would see that incredible attention was given to the idea of the spread of holiness, not only because they saw this theme in the Torah, but because they saw it and then realized that it was important enough to protect themselves against it. So, so where we're going to go, and we're going to go to this really fascinating article and one strange and overlooked text in the book of Romans, actually, is that this idea of, of mixing and holiness, and I think I've used this language before, the, according to the logic, the science here, you have to be defensive against defilement, right? You want to protect yourself from becoming unclean by not touching things. But then there's a sense of offensive holiness, that if something is, is super, super holy, that it can make other things holy. And it sort of highlights this tension that the text itself doesn't explicitly answer, but it seems like it's trying to get us to reflect on is what happens if a, if a really, really holy substance comes into contact uh, with the world in a way that the world could handle? Would it be able to make the whole world holy? Okay, and by the way, there are babies crying, kids running, in-laws laughing, tickling. I'm pretty sure there's a whole world of chaos going on outside my door right now. So if you hear uh, the chaos... Uh, they just had a baby. There it is. So cut them some slack. Thank you for the slack. Okay. <laughs> so uh, the first of two articles we're going to mention. Um, this article was fascinating to me. Neither of the articles I'm going to suggest do I think you should go out and try to read. Uh, I'm going to try to give you the best, <laughs> the best parts of it. But if you just don't believe me, uh, the first one is by a scholar named Benjamin Gordon. And it has the highly enticing title of on the sanctity of mixtures and branches, colon, two halakhic sayings in Romans 11, 16 through 24. Uh, so back to the nerd web, huh? <laughs> Riveting. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'll try to draw out the important points here, and then, and then we'll move on. But, okay, Nate, you probably remember Romans 9 through 11. What is it? Is this like where it's talking about the Israelites and the Gentiles being mixed? I mean, I guess that's the whole... There's a lot of that going on in Romans, but um, is this where it kind of dives into that a little bit more? Yeah, it's a th it's a three chapter long 
diatribe explanation, uh, attempt at making sense of how to think about uh, what is happening between Gentile Christians and Israel or non-Christian Jews. And it's an important section of text. It's a much debated and heated uh, section of text. Wait, Romans is debated? <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> right in the middle of this argument is both this set of sort of uh, imagery, this metaphor that Paul's going to work with, and then this really interesting line that you'll probably recall the metaphor, but I, I doubt you'll recall this line. So why don't you read Romans 11, 16, uh, and just to refresh your memory, you can keep reading a few verses after that. But 16 is the verse we're going to talk about. Okay, cool. So Romans eleven sixteen. If the part of dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. And then continuing on from there, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay, yeah. So this is like the grafting in of the olive branch. I always told, uh, whenever I was like preaching on this or teaching on this, I always told like a story about my grandpa because he had, they sold the property now, but a small orchard behind his house and he's so cool. So he would graft different types of fruits onto different types of fruit trees. So he had like an apple tree that had um, one branch that was just cherries. And then he had like a couple different types of, of apples on uh, different apple trees. He grew pears on apple trees. I mean, it was pretty cool. I remember just as a kid being like, wait, what? Like, and just wanted to know the science behind it all and wanting to like dig into it. But that's how my brain works. But yeah, so I would always use that story whenever I would like teach on this because uh, yeah, trying to explain that like what was going on here. Totally. Okay, so uh, as you've tried to make sense of it in the past, what is Paul saying with this imagery? What is the message? I mean, I always kind of taught it that like we're all part of true Israel. So there's like Israelites and then there's Gentiles, but we're moving beyond that to this whole like quote unquote true Israel thing where it's not about the rituals that you keep. It's about being a part of and believing in what Jesus did. And so now we're all part of the same family. So they had a lot of stuff to figure out. That's how I taught it, I guess. It's basically that. Okay. So we're going to look at this, not to get into this discussion on the relationship between church and Israel, Jew, Gentile, that discussion. Uh, we're going to get into this to show how the idea, the <laughs> the scientific thinking about mixing substances and how that relates to holiness is underlying the New Testament, the Old Testament, the entire Jesus story, all that. Uh, and then we're going to uh, pass that torch on. But it's also, we're going to take two minutes to stop and think about what Paul's actually saying about, about this here, using this metaphor. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? 
What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) But Okay, so let's try to place ourselves as best we can into the ancient agrarian farm culture of essentially the entire ancient world, but right now of Israel and the people uh, thinking in, in farm language closer to uh, your family who were actually grafting trees, right? Not the kind of people who just go to grocery stores and buy whatever fruit from across the world that they wanted. Uh, we're talking about grafting here for a second. Uh, and then think about what we've what I've tried to lay out of what holiness is. That on one hand, it is essentially a, a chemical state of being in which one can be close to God. And simultaneously, because there is this hierarchy of, of people and places who are set apart as close to God. So you have the high priests and the Levitical priests and the rest of the whole tribe of Levites. These are God's portion. Then because of that, in this world, when something, remember I said the altar was made most holy. So when something touched the altar, when you presented food, animal or, or grain on the altar, it became holy. That actually meant that most of it went to the priests, to, to be their portion of food, right? The priests were busy overseeing, guarding, safeguarding the temple. They weren't out farming. And so the entire idea of a tithe was essentially a tax system where the rest of the people could subsidize that temple work by giving things to the priests. Oh, we still need to do the, the tithe episode for Utterly Heretical. We've talked about that before. We need to get that. We need to get that out. We do. Please send your worst tithe stories uh, or, or most hilarious tithe stories or your uh, deepest questions related to the church and tithes because uh, yes. we're going to do a whole episode on that. Okay. Contact at almostheretical.com. Thank you. So again, just the highlight, the, th- just think about the con- the concern. So uh, if, if I have, and, and also remember that most all these people by modern standards would have been... Uh, you know, living subsistence living, right? You don't have just, you're not swimming in, in groceries, right? You don't have, uh, you know, big giant grocery stores. You're working your butt off for every uh, bit of grain flour that you can produce. And then you're giving some of that over. You're making it holy. You're setting it aside. You're taking it, you know, the, the typical way we talk about it, setting it apart as holy to go to the temple, essentially to God and the priests kind of all at the same time. The concern is, it's not how it's not just how do you keep from defiling your food. It's how do you keep from making your food holy so that you keep it. You get to keep it, and it, and it doesn't become all uh, a part of the priest. We we'll actually see right. one of the the fights that Jesus gets in uh, with some of the Jewish leaders in the Gospels is specifically over <laughs> this logic and how. 
the some of the Levites were using this economic element of the Levitical system to get things to be dedicated over to the temple. Oh, this is like uh, my friend Mark and I. We'd go when we go get a pizza. He doesn't like uh, Parmesan cheese, so I would try to sprinkle Parmesan as quickly as I could onto as much of the pizza as possible so that I could save those for myself so that he wouldn't want to eat them. It's ex- that's, ex- that's exactly what's going on here, right? <laughs> right, but the, the only reason, the possibility of somebody taking advantage of this system, the only reason that that possibility exists is because the system itself is inevitably a blend of economics and essentially cultic ritual uh, and, and scientific beliefs. Okay, there's no, you can't separate this from from politics and economics because people's belongings are all wrapped up in it, right? And so, mm. a good point of clarification, and we'll get into that fight later on. The point is not that these concerns uh, are silly or legalistic. That is not it. When we read, and I, as I was reading through the Mishnah and reading those who uh, have interpreted the Mishnah, I kept feeling within myself the same sense of like these practical concerns, uh, they feel so strange and foreign. It's in like so much of my Protestant like juice was oozing out that I kept feeling like, whoa, this sounds legalistic. It's just because it's so uh, foreign to us. But the point was, genuinely believed that the, the states of holiness, purity, defilement, these were real states affecting real things. And therefore, you had better practically figure out how to live your life in in line with those beliefs, right? So the fact that some people could take advantage of it doesn't mean that the whole system was a mess. But it does highlight that that this risk was inherent. Most of the people, the non-Levite Israelites, that would mean they would actually have to forfeit their goods, their belongings, their assets, which was a, a severe economic risk. Mm. And so uh, think about and, and and then consider that it wasn't just dead animal flesh or or dead grains, you know, like prepared food that was given to the Levites, but whole fields would be dedicated to the Levites or trees would be given to the Levites. And those fields would be bordering right alongside everybody else's fields. Is that like when you consecrated a field to the Lord or something like that? Yeah, by giving it to the Levites. Gotcha. So it's not like the whole field would be burned up in the temple, right? The field would stay there. It'd be a field. It would belong to the Levites now. So you get the questions that that are throughout the Mishnah, especially in, like I said, the sixth division, uh, which... Are, are everywhere asking practical questions like, well, what if one of the holy trees in the Levitical field gets big enough that its branches reach over the fence into the common field? When then an, a pomegranate is growing on the branch, hanging off of the holy tree, but into the common field, is that pomegranate common or holy? More importantly, who does it belong to? Did you, Who gets to eat that thing? Have you ever taken a piece of fruit that's hanging over a fence that wasn't yours? I mean, y- yes, I have. <laughs> Full confession. Not for a while, I d- but I have. I did when I was younger um, and I lived in Southern California because it was an orange. And like, I'm from, I'm from Oregon. We don't 
oranges just don't grow here. And I was like, an orange is hanging down or it's right in my face. I, I have to take this. It's, yep. it's an orange. So another one, it's grafting. So think about, so you've got like a border space and things are leaning from one side to the other. And there's a question of, well, you know, does, does the branch leaning into the common space make that whole tree common? Or does the, the tree, is the tree holy enough to remain holy even in common space? Then you get the idea of, okay, what if there's a holy tree, meaning it's just one of the priest's trees, and the, the thing that somebody gives to that, the priestly tribe, to the Levites, is a, a grafting from another tree, right? Which, again, is foreign to a lot of us who aren't close to, to farming, uh, but was a common practice throughout the world, is you would graft new bits of tree into older, well-established trees to bear new fruit. Okay, so what, what happens? Does the common grafting essentially diminish the holiness of the entire tree? Or does the holiness of that tree make that new grafting also holy? So this is the, this is the practical thinking that actually proves how well-established the logic was about the, the spread of holiness. I think what kind of makes this feel legalistic, potentially, is that... We're looking at this now and saying, this we know isn't the way the world works. Not just you and me, not just progressive Christians. I'm talking about like even, you know, the reformed camp. Maybe subconsciously looking at this and saying, we know this isn't the way the world works. Look at how caught up they were in all of these little things, all these little details, when the best way was just going to be this one person, Jesus, like taking this all away so they didn't have to worry about any of this. Look at how caught up they were. Look at how misinformed they were, right? Like, I wonder if some of that creeps in and it's hard It's hard to not have that happen. I wonder if that's maybe where some of this starts feeling legalistic or too focused on these tiny little details is because we don't, at our core, think that this is actually the way things are. Like that, that uh, the branch that hangs over from the holy field into the common field, and then d- the debates and the trying to figure out, like, does that make the tree then holy or common because it touch- it hangs over? And someone's going to, a priest or, or someone is going to make that decision about what that tree is. But did that actually change, did their decision actually change the nature of that tree? And we're like, no, you know, they're, they're missing it. They're missing the point. And so reformed people would say like, no, you're missing the point. Like it was all about Jesus the whole way. Like, and I think maybe that's this is creeping in, um, this disbelief that this stuff actually was how the world was working. Yeah, and that's what you and I have talked about. We need to be honest that we don't believe in the underlying science, most of us, and mo- many of us aren't going to be able to believe it. Uh, but l- let's use this example uh, that we're looking at in Romans 11 to point out, you know, Paul arguably is, has been used more than any other source of the New Testament to make the case that... Jesus and Jesus' followers were condemning the rest of Israel for being legalistic, right? That the Paul often is, is interpreted as saying, uh, essentially the law was, was bad and we need to be freed from legalism. And yet, here we are, what Paul is doing, and this is a large part of the argument in Gordon's article, is essentially quoting the kind of rabbinical arguments that we can now find in the Mishnah agreeing with them. 
he's essentially referencing the arguments to reassert the logic. And he's not questioning the logic. He's not questioning whether these things matter. He's affirming that it is real, genuine, true, and important. And he's doing so in order to make another point. So, so think about this. So Paul says, so remember we talked about trees and, and sort of like vineyards and, and orchards and how they would blend with others. But then the other one, as I mentioned, you'd be setting aside a portion of your grain, either raw grain or mixed dough to be, be the holy portion, the holy 10%. And then what needed to happen is once that became holy is you would carefully have to preserve that those two didn't touch each other again. Hmm. Because otherwise what you would do is you would take 10% of your, your assets, make them holy, and then if an accident occurred, if you spilled that bowl back into the, the main bowl, because the idea was that that 10% had become very holy, you would actually then make all 100% of your flour holy. Which again, isn't a good thing. It's a very bad thing. Right. So this is what Paul is saying. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits, what he is saying is the part of the dough offered to the Levites is holy. And essentially Gordon's argument is, is the logic here is then it, it mixes. Then the whole batch becomes holy. Is this kind of like the, a tiny little piece of poop in the brownies? Is that this kind of a thing? Like it makes the whole thing, no one is going to want to eat it because it's like, that's the opposite, right? That's the the bad side. It makes it defiled. But if you could add something (laughs) positive poop, (laughs) something, Mm -hmm. something good to that batch that made it all something you would want to eat or something that was quote unquote good, would that sort of be the same analogy of the poop and brownies? And I think even that example just shows it's so much easier for us to think about these in this in negative terms. Right. We don't have nearly as many examples of positively virally contaminating sources, right? Like we don't think about... I'm trying to think of like a... Is adding chlorine to a swimming pool, is that maybe a good one? I mean, I, in my mind, chlorine's another negative. I mean, it, it you know... It cl- I, okay, or salt, salt, something that would clean, you know, the water, but it spreads and it makes the whole water salt water, which is then, um, you know, maybe cleaner to swim in than regular water. Yes. I'm talking like in a swimming pool example, for instance. Right. So we're right to be thinking of mixing and chemicals. And what we'll actually see is fluids, to use your, your swimming pool thing, the fluids are a big deal in this, essentially this chemistry, because fluids are sort of the quintessential mixing uh, chemicals. They're really hard to separate. It, They're impossible to separate in their in their view, right? Uh, not impossible. Actually, see uh, whether something can be back, whether a mixture can be backed out or not, can be separated, determines what kind of mixture it is. Uh, and all of that's going to play into <laughs> how the New Testament presents Jesus, uh, believe it or not. So let's, let's just round this Romans piece out um, in the way that this is essentially clarifying uh, much of, of Jewish rabbinic thought, which is thought based on Leviticus, and the same thought is underlying the New Testament, okay? Paul is saying that when a small bit of holy thing mixes with a, even a potentially large bit of unholy common thing, that actually many times it isn't the holiness that goes away, it's the commonality, the commonness that goes away, and everything becomes holy. So last conversation where we picked it up, they've shown that we, many of us, are, are largely unfamiliar or even as translators don't even want to believe that holiness can spread. And yet what you see in the rabbinical debates, and I didn't see this, I uh, didn't read this firsthand, I saw this in Gordon's text, 
is there's actually an example when it's dealing with flour and the flour used in an offering that asks, okay, at what ratio, at what proportion of mixture does the common portion actually maintain commonness and sort of subsume back the whole, the holy portion? In mm. other words, what I said is, say you take, you know, a hundred allotments of dough or grain and you take out 10 of them, 10%. Uh, and that 10% then gets spilled back in, the whole thing becomes uh, holy. How much unholy food would you have to have right. such that the whole thing wouldn't become holy? And they answer it at a hundred to one ratio. Wow. So, so think about this for a second. It's not just that holiness spreads. It's that holiness spreads so su- sufficiently, so thoroughly, that unless you have a hundred times as much unholy product then the little bit of holiness at a one to 99 ratio will make the entire thing holy. So to understand Jesus, I would argue you have to understand this logic. You don't need to know the 100 to 1 ratio. (laughs) You need to understand this logic because what we see when we read the Gospels is a presentation that something that is that kind of holy substance is making the world holy at that kind of rate. It is, it is a small bit of holiness in a big world making the whole world holy. So let's, let's refresh on one like glitter. important idea. It's like the glitter bombs that for a while were getting sent out in the mail. Okay, so before we move on to the, to the next piece of mixtures, let's just stop and ask the question we've asked a dozen times now. Why couldn't God just have done all this from the get-go? Right. If Jesus was able to make the whole world holy, if Jesus' blood cleansed the world, and we'll get into the details of all that, it's the it's the age old question of like why didn't he just it's the age old question of why didn't God just do that at the beginning? Right. Right. So what what was our answer to that? Why could God not just make everything holy? Or or <laughs> why could God's holiness not just easily spread out into the world? Because God couldn't get near humans couldn't, couldn't get close enough slash there were the divine beings that were wreaking havoc is that any bit of that true uh that's that's related that's related uh the i think the thing we need to see is when we're talking about the the process the change the transformation from unclean to clean and then clean to holy which we're saying that everybody to to be close to god needed to go through those changes right yeah. So why didn't God just make everybody clean and holy and then we could be done talking about all this, right? That's the question. The the answer, the logic according to these texts is compatibility. The the world, the reason holiness had to be contained in the tabernacle is it wasn't compatible with the defiled world. The reason Aaron had to stay inside the tabernacle when his sons died instead of going out to their funeral was because he would die because his holiness was not compatible with the world. But why then if you take like a tiny little bit of holy liquid and you add it to unholy liquid, shouldn't that have been the, then it makes it holy, right? Shouldn't that have, when these things, these holy things were released out into the world, wouldn't they have just made them holy? But don't forget about defilement. So you're this, we're talking, remember these are the two strains of thought that always have to be held at the same time. We're talking about what you have a batch of, of clean, but common flour, how does, the, how does holiness react within that environment? That's very different than saying, what happens if you take a holy object and drop it into a defiled setting? 
what happens if the priest touches a dead body? Hmm. That That's different, right? Now we're at the point of the Alka-Seltzer into the soda bottle. Is this why it was so important for Jesus to be without sin? No. What we're going to see is this is why it was so important for Jesus to be a chemical mixture of God and humanity, just like blood was a mixture of divine and human substances such that God could be close to blood and humans could be close to blood. Blood was perfectly compatible and therefore was the best substance at making things holy. And Jesus, here's where we're going, so much of the Gospels, so much of the epistles are talking about how what Jesus was was a, a special mixture such that the world had never seen before that gave it the same properties of blood to be mutually compatible substance that could unite both parties and do what hadn't been able to be done before. All of this is underlied. All of this is based on the idea of <laughs> chemical mixtures and what happens with when holiness is mixed in with unholiness. Is this like Eleven in Stranger Things? She's able to, she's fully human, but she's also able to like interact with the other realm because she's like fully part of that realm, but also fully part of the human realm as well or something? Uh, Yeah. I think that's that picks up part of it. It's going to break down pretty quick, but yeah. Yeah, what we're going to see is... Uh, there's so much in the Gospels that the reason it's there, or at least one of the reasons it's there, is to go even further. Uh, so what we're going to see, we won't get into all of it today, the whole subject of yeast, right? The metaphor of yeast, mm-hmm. the metaphor of a small little mustard seed that grows up into the kingdom of God, the language of a vine and its branches and being in the vine and remaining in the vine, even the whole creation, whatever you want to call it, uh, of the virgin birth is a way of explaining and justifying the kind of chemical substance that Jesus was and and what that meant. Okay, so we're going to get into some of the details. Let's go high level and finish this out with some stoic mixture theory. Okay, so article number two, I highly recommend that you do not Read this article. <laughs> Nerd web. It, it is like 45 pages of the, uh, 40 of it is is dense, painful reading. And five pages of it are some of the most, I think, significant stuff I've read in a long time. And it is uh, written by somebody named Anthony Brigman. And it is titled, Irenaeus's Christology of Mixture. Okay. We're not even going to talk about Irenaeus. And, and I'm just going to give a few points here. Uh, but, but here's here's where we're going to go. Essentially, the scholar went through Irenaeus as one of the, the earliest church fathers. Okay, Again, we're not going to get into that, but we're going to back up and, and make some arguments based off this article. One of the earliest church fathers. And this article reads Irenaeus and then went through and actually read all, the, all of the texts that we have from Stoic scientists discussing their theories on chemical mixtures. Okay. Strange as that is. Yeah. And the argument, very well argued, laid out with uh, significant evidence, is that Irenaeus 
made sense of Jesus by saying that Jesus was a a comixtos, a a mixture, was it which was a uh, a precise chemical term term according to Stoic science, in which two substances were were blended together and yet didn't become one altogether new substance, which could never be uh, separated. But they also didn't just remain as two entirely separate substances like oil and water, but instead they blended together in a way that allowed them to maintain their own individual attributes while being one shared substance. Now, obviously that sounds like what I'm talking about is Jesus, right? Or the way we talk about, you know, the the divinity and humanity of Jesus. But right. the point was, the point in this article is, regardless of any religious concerns, lots of people, like the people we usually think of as philosophers, like Aristotle, they were also scientists and chemists and physicists, and they were trying to understand the physical world around them, and they were making science and and publishing their conclusions and people were reading that science just like we do today and interpreting their world and their religious world in accord with that science. Hmm. So his argument was basically people were performing uh, chemistry experiments and then they would watch the results and they would essentially created a system in which there are three or maybe four uh, ways that fluids typically could be blended together and, and there are different different. Uh, kinds of blending processes that happened. One of them that I just described was called a mixture. And then Brigman points out that Irenaeus seems to be clearly using the same language of mixture in describing Jesus. So his point is that Irenaeus, somebody who came after the people who wrote the New Testament, but very early in church history, used this language to understand what Christ was. Christ was a blend, a mixture of God and humanity such that the two remained the, essentially kept their own attributes, brought humanity and God together into one substance, uh, shared together in a common substance, uh, but also preserved uh, their essential essences. Okay, so that's the, that's the argument of this article. He, here's what I think we can use that Romans 11 bit. And, and this whole case we've been building about Leviticus to say. The New Testament writers before Irenaeus did the same thing, okay? All of the language, if you had to pick what is the central theme, for instance, of all of the Pauline epistles, it's not grace, it's not faith, it is being in Christ, that's the idea and the framework that is repeated more often and more importantly, arguably, than anything else in Paul's writings. Right. What we're seeing when we look at that is not some wishy-washy ethereal idea. It's based on chemistry. That humanity, those who, who are Jesus's followers, have been mixed in with Christ like a like wine can be mixed in with a glass of water, okay? And that is the same framework for what Jesus was in the first place. So it's, it's saying the same thing that Athanasius, another one of the uh, great church fathers said. Athanasius is one who wrote uh, a text called On the Incarnation, which I think is arguably the most important, least read uh, of all of the ancient 
sort of uh, uh, early church theologians, which is arguing that it's all about the incarnation. So there's a famous line, Jesus brought all of humanity to himself and threw him to the Father. So, so, so here's the idea. The same uh, framework of mixture that we can see in Irenaeus and see in Athanasius, I believe you can see in the New Testament, but also you can see it in the Hebrew Bible. So the second idea is, I don't even think Irenaeus necessarily needed to get this stuff from Stoic scientists. It was in Leviticus all along. So Paul could look to Leviticus and make this argument about the grafting of a tree, right? Uh, and, and Irenaeus could make a similar argument uh, based on Stoic science, but it's the same idea. People are talking about mixtures, blends, chemistry, and that is going to be the answer to our question of why. <laughs> what did Jesus do? How did he do it? And why did Jesus have to die? And why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? And we'll see that we can answer all of those questions without ever talking about blood <laughs> or Jesus uh, needing to pay any sort of price. Okay, okay. So real quick, you got like five minutes. Here's the question. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Okay, well, let's save the details for later. But you probably, you probably didn't think this is what I was going to say. Nate, on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, mm -hmm. what two basic things happened? Uh, that there was the forgiveness of sins. How? Shedding of blood, the sacrifice. No. Okay, so you are forgiven I, for, I don't for really not having know. the answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is important. That The reason that was your answer is because that's what most of us have been taught. Two animals were brought up. Okay, it's one of the few times where you get two, two animals called... The scapegoat. The scapegoat, yeah. Yeah. So one is treated as usual, is brought to the altar, killed, and it's the blood of the animal spread throughout the altar. This is what uh, Jacob Milgram has said is, is a way of annually cleansing the altar with the blood, not just the altar, the entire tabernacle. I'm arguing that it's, it's potentially cleansing, but it's largely insulating the tabernacle. That's what the dead animal is doing, and it has nothing to do with forgiveness. Remember, what we said is... If you did something like adultery or murder, there was no blood that could do anything for you. That's not what offerings accomplished. Blood didn't do that. You needed to get out of the, the area. Correct. You couldn't be around people anymore. So, so think then about that connection. To, to deal with someone who had done real wrong, you got rid of them. Okay, well then what is this? So they put it on the scapegoat and then sent that thing out of there. Correct. As a picture of those, not even a picture, that they would believe that those, those sins, those transgressions or whatever, were leaving with that thing. They actually left, yeah. So what we're going to see is much of the New Testament talks about the treatment of sin, but there is a reason why we're all debating atonement and what Jesus actually accomplished and whether penal substitution is valid or not. And that is because nowhere, anywhere in the New Testament does it ever say Jesus' blood was, was shed to pay the price for sins. Yet language like Jesus became sin, Jesus became the curse, and took away sin. Ah. Is this why it's important that he 
went to hell or went to Hades or what, like went far away. Yeah. Remember the language in Hebrews, a passage we read a couple episodes, that Jesus went outside the camp. Right. And made everybody holy. Okay. Uh, well, let's talk, let's save the, the descent into Hades piece for later because okay, okay. there's some interesting questions there, but it, it is related potentially, but it's the, it's the death and then the resurrection. So what we've done, so what we've done is we've lumped in language in the New Testament that is referencing separately Yom Kippur and Passover. We've lumped them together and acted like the lambs involved in both events were doing the same, okay? Right. So in Passover, you have one lamb. That lamb is killed and the blood is used to do what? Cover something and insulate it from a deadly force, okay? In the in one of the lambs on the Day of Atonement, that same thing happens. An animal's killed, blood is used to insulate over things. But then you have the second goat or lamb. This is an interesting piece I had to, to see is that lamb can be used as a word to reference a young animal, unblemished, of either goat or sheep. Okay? Oh. So when we read, for instance, in the Gospel of John... <laughs> that Jesus is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, we actually can see that as the scapegoat of the day of Yom Kippur, the goat. Lamb doesn't necessarily mean sheep, not goat. Lamb can is essentially a category of which either a sheep or goat can be used to fulfill that category. So what we've done is we've conflated two different ideas— most of the Gospels intentionally want us to mostly see Jesus' death as fulfilling the typology of the Passover. So Jesus is the Passover lamb killed on Passover, or the day before Passover, to lead Israel into freedom, into a new exodus. That is not about forgiveness whatsoever. There is no forgiveness happening in the Passover or the exodus. There's liberation only. The fact that the Gospels are 90% concerned with telling the story in terms of a new exodus should should say something important, right? But then what we've done is we've taken other bits from the Gospels and then also in the epistles that are referencing the day of Yom Kippur, and we've, we've sort of conflated those, and more importantly, we've conflated the two animals of Yom Kippur. So I made the case earlier that when Jesus died, and we'll talk about the house later, his blood poured out on the defiled ground, and that blood made the whole world holy. But that didn't forgive anybody, and that didn't deal with sin, because blood was never meant to deal with sin. Sacrifice or offerings didn't deal with sin. Sin had to be dealt with by removal. And so, again, when John says that the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world— it means literally take away, right? to bear and remove. Or the language of 1 John 3, in, in verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. But then in verse 5, the way that that was accomplished was by taking away our sins. So we take that to mean forgiving. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about taking away away. So what we're going to see is that Jesus is presented in part as as the lamb that is killed to, uh, to protect people 
and lead them into a new liberating freedom movement, into a new exodus. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is also presented as the first lamb on the day of Yom Kippur, whose blood makes things clean and holy. And Jesus is also presented as the second lamb or goat on the day of Yom Kippur, who bears, physically carries, the evil, the wrong, the sin of the nation, and then goes very far away right. so that that sin can be disposed of. Now, now think about this. We, lots of people continue to ask the question of what actually happened with that goat. What did the people believe was happening when they laid their hands on the goat? We don't know. But what we do know is that all of the New Testament language is wrapped up with the idea of, of Jesus being a chemical mixture. So, so think about this. We talked about compatibility. Okay, what, what the idea is that in Jesus, all Jesus is, is a, a perfect blend of God and humanity so that where Jesus goes, humanity goes or or Jesus takes human with him mm-hmm. and also everywhere that Jesus goes Jesus takes God with him so what does that mean then if people were believing that statement about this man what does that mean they can say happened when Jesus first died and then was raised and exalted next to God in heaven that that's where Humans are too. That's the resurrection piece. But the first piece, so think about it, this, the, the goat from Yom Kippur goes really far away and then we're never told what happens. Does the goat live on? Is the goat adopted by the, the neighbors next door? Is the goat, does the goat die? We don't know. Part of what the New Testament celebrates is the reason they say Jesus has done something more sufficiently with sin and the devil that has ever been done before is because Jesus brought in his body all of the world's evil to the ultimate place of disposal through the ultimate act of disposal, which is death. In other words, Jesus didn't just carry sin far away. The idea is Jesus carried sin to die, which which is stated explicitly. So it's the ultimate act of disposal, which is the ultimate act of expiation. It's not just forgiveness, I'll ignore your sins. It's I'm literally, physically, chemically removing, doing away, destroying them, Hmm. okay? Then secondarily, as you say, why resurrection? (laughs) Well, it's when Jesus goes to be with God, sitting at God's right hand, then Paul can say, where Jesus is, we are there with him. Or he can say, we, we literally, physically live and move in and exist. We have our being in Christ, in Jesus. And it's all based on this idea that Jesus was this rare chemical compound, <laughs> that what happens to Jesus happens to humanity and to God. So Jesus brings God to humanity and, and humanity to God, but in a way that doesn't destroy anybody in a way that is so compatible like blood that it's it is made possible. Hmm. That is why resurrection, that is why Jesus 
dies. That is what happens, a part of what happens at death uh, that is that is dealing with sin in a way, to me, is far richer, more profound, even if it's more strange, maybe, than the idea of, I forgive you and I'm going to ignore all of the things that yeah. you've done. Right. Yeah, totally. That is uh, <laughs> way more complex. My mind's kind of, my brain's hurting and we need to talk about that more. But yeah, it's way more complex, but I think does away with a lot of the the problems um, that some of the other interpretations of the atonement and just of the Bible in general have created. But it it definitely makes it, <laughs> like we've talked about on the show before, harder to believe and something that I think we're going to need to chat about a lot more. So we'll do that. We'll do that next time. And just one thing, I know we're finished, but we talked about Romans 11, and I promised we would take a minute to make a, a real quick clarifying point about Paul's position on the church and Israel. And because anti-Semitism is still alive and well, especially in Christian church world, I think we, we need to highlight what Paul is saying is Israel is the holy tree that makes Gentiles holy by being grafted into the holy tree. It is the goodness, the holiness, the positive force present and remaining present in Israel, in Paul's understanding, that is the entire reason that Gentiles have any claim upon anything. And his whole point in the argument is to say, therefore, Gentiles, like, slow your roll. Mm. Know who, you, who, like, where you come from. Know what your roots are. And I think that's important to push back against yeah. supersessionism and, and anti-Semitic mm. theology. And also... At the same time, push back on the idea that Paul and Jesus were making up new ideas. Right. <laughs> like they're all of their ideological roots, their holy ideological roots were also in Israel and Israel's texts. So there you go. Raise your hand if you now don't feel smart enough to be a Christian and call yourself a Christian anymore. Uh, that's where I am right now. So we got to talk about this more um, because it does make it harder to believe mostly because I can't remember all this stuff enough to then explain to someone why Jesus even came. So then I think that's where we get to. Then we then we end up like arguing on their terms, arguing, you know, with their set of rules because this, if this is what we're going to adopt is okay, I think I think I agree with you Tim and these other scholars, then you know, it's a lot harder to just you can't throw this on a t-shirt or something. You know, it's a lot harder to to use um and to explain to someone. And so that's why we all sound like heretics. Welcome to the journey. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us contact at almostheretical.com. Any of your thoughts or questions or pushbacks or just, you know, bits of your story or whatever you want to share with us. We love reading those. It kind of encourages us as we keep making this show and a big thanks to all the patrons that help support the show so we can keep going. All right. You can find out more at almostheretical.com. We'll catch you next time. Peace y'all.